wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome and thanks for listening. Please rate and review Bleeding Daylight wherever you listen to podcasts and share this and other episodes with others. Bleeding Daylight is on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Find links at bleedingdaylight.net. Today, we'll be taking a fascinating look into a 400-year-old allegory and the amazing life of its author. Timothy L. Price is an avid reader, but there's one book that he's found particularly inspirational. It's a book that was written back in the 1600s and has since been mostly forgotten. He joins me on Bleeding Daylight to talk about how he has brought this favourite book back to life. Timothy, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me. Before we do jump into hearing about this labour of love of yours, let's get to know you a little. Tell me about your background and where has life brought you so far? Well, I grew up with a religious group called the Christian Missionary Alliance. Some of my formative years were under a teacher that was a direct protege of A.W. Tozer. So the teaching was very good. We had a perspective of, uh, and a consciousness of world evangelism and the need for us to reach outside of our community and our, our fellowship to share the love of Christ with other people. And after that, I went to Bible school. It was a Lutheran, semi-charismatic, exegetical Bible school. And then we went on to Youth of the Mission in Discipleship Training School. So we had lots of good background, lots of good education, and lots of good perspective that was given to us and seeded to us over the years. Was it back in these early years that you developed this habit of reading and, and reading widely? Yes, because I found that my own tradition or my own background really didn't contain everything that I needed to understand or I felt I needed to understand. I went to, to Bible school, for instance, we were sitting around the table in the dorm talking about the 1988 Republican presidential primary election. And each person was describing why they would vote for this person or that person. And there was a fellow from Uganda who was with us who said, you guys are crazy. And we said, uh, excuse us. That's how it's done here. And he said, no, no, no. He said, you guys are crazy. He said, if God told you to vote for a Pharaoh, meaning a totally ungodly person, would you do it? And we all unanimously responded, well, we would never do such a thing. And this fellow from Uganda take, took us back to the Old Testament and exposed our ideas at Bible school, no less, to be different than God's. Imagine that. And it's at that point I became very conflicted about the perspective I had been given over the years, even as good as it was, and it was good. It was it was primary, very fundamental and very practical, but it had major holes in it. And it took me 14 years to dig my way through reading and through study and research to come out of that. One of the books I read that really began to open my mind is a book called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren by a Dutch Reformed preacher by the name of Leonard Verdine. 
And so that was groundbreaking. And in that book and in another book called The Pilgrim Church by E.H. Brodbent, both those two books really gave a lot of background into a not so well-known period of Christian history. We would describe it as dissident faith, and that is of the Waldensians and the Moravians and the Anabaptists. And there was lots of prime resources in these books. And one of them exposed the book that I have come to love for the last 20 years. And that's the book that I've republished to make it more available to more people. I found an obscure reference in the bibliographies. I'm an odd duck and that I read the bibliographies because I want to know who's quoting whom. I saw that this reference a Christian allegory. I think it was in the, the Pilgrim Church. I didn't recognize the title and I didn't recognize the name of the author. I thought, huh, I got this book and it was absolutely floored. The name of the book is The Labyrinth of the World and the Paradise of the Heart, written by John Amos Cominius, who wrote this book in 1623. And it is a semi-biographical dystopian allegory. And it features a pilgrim who goes to the world, and what he wants to do is he wants to live a good life. He wants to be fulfilled and meaningful and significant in his life. And he is aided by a pair of guides with character trait names. One is Mr. Ubiquitous, and the other is Mr. Delusion. And these two characters try to get Pilgrim to see the world the way they want him to see it, not the way it really is. Pilgrim is very moral and very smart, actually. They go through the entire world looking at everything from marriage to politics to uh, medicine to law to military to everything conceivable, intellectual involvements, the church, religion, secret society stuff, all sorts of different things. And he sees Pilgrim through the glasses that he has been that has been foisted upon him to to change his perspective about things and all of the descriptions that his uh, deceiving guides have given him sees that there is only vanity and violence and despair in the world in every corner, under every rock, in every involvement. And he is totally distraught. He won't make a decision to join the world in something that would contribute to those things. And finally, his guides take him to before wisdom queen of the world for her trial for not making a decision and not joining in and confirming the world as it is. And um, the trial is interrupted by a series of things that goes on involving King Solomon of all people. And pretty soon Pilgrim ends up on the edge of the world at the edge of the abyss and his guides ab abandon him because he's obstinate and he won't make a decision. And at that point, he's totally despairing of his life. His life will be meaningless. His life won't be fulfilling, and he won't be significant in any way, shape, or form. And at that point, he meets Christ, and Christ invites him into his heart and transforms his mind and transforms his perspective. But he sends Pilgrim back to the world that he's just traversed in order to be light, truth, and reality the world can't be for itself. And this book inspired 
Pilgrim's Progress. That's another reason why I love the book, because it presents really what I feel is a more healthy view of the world. Uh, and that is that it's really messed up, but also the fact that we have a kingdom and we serve a king and we have empowerment and we have gifting and we have calling and we have inspiration on our part. Plus, our mind is transformed so that we can serve, we can be ambassadors to the world, and we're not beholden to them all the time because we have a king and a kingdom uh, that we live from as ambassadors to the world. The world isn't to be tolerated. The world is to be served. I'm wondering, I mean, you've already explained that this was actually the inspiration for Pilgrim's Progress, but I, I wonder, were you aware of Pilgrim's Progress before you came to this book? That was one of the one of the books that was highly recommended at church because our church had, the pastor had a Puritan background or a Presbyterian background. And the book is great. I love Pilgrim's Progress. I love the allegory. And there's some real value there. And so uh, I had read it probably two or three times. I remember reading it as a young child, a children's version of it. And then as I got older, I read it in Bible school. And then I, I read it again as more of an adult in conjunction to when I found Labyrinth of the World. And I was just bowled over by the difference because in Pilgrim's Progress, the objective is getting to the celestial city. And the objective is tolerating the world on the way through and the troubles and trials and all this stuff. But there's no focus whatsoever in the book about a transformed life. There is no focus upon Christ in us, the hope of glory. There is no focus upon being ambassadors and servants to the world, having a different perspective about our existence than, oh, can I die already and go to be with Jesus where it's all good for me? It's interesting when we look at Pilgrim's Progress, we know that that has been, I guess, retranslated over the years and, and updated so that it's easier to read. What was the process when you came to the labyrinth of the world to bring it into to language that people would be able to grasp? As you say, it was written back in 1632. What was the process for you to make it readable for a current audience? Well, that's interesting. When I got the first copy, it was translated for the third time or the fourth time by the Catholics. It was a great book. I love it. But it was a tough read because of the way that they translated and the way that they put it together. It was a very good translation in that it was gave me a perspective and understanding of the story. But the difficulty of it was that everything's in block paragraphs. And as modern readers and modern novels and modern uh, fiction books, all the dialogue is always broken out so that you know that there's character changes or that there's, there's different people talking and stuff. And I wanted something that was more practical. So I went back and I looked at an earlier edition, the first English edition, which is the Count Lutzo 1901 edition. And that was like reading Chaucer. There's nothing wrong with Chaucer, but... <laughs> The average bear today is not going to waste a whole lot of time trying to read a book and try to understand that, uh, you know, Middle English and, and stuff. So then I got the British edition done by Oxford University. And in that edition, they try to make the author sound very Calvinistic. 
And he definitely wasn't a Calvinist. He wasn't not not a Calvinist. He, you know, he worked with a lot of Reformed people over the over his life, but he was definitely his own man. And so I thought again, it's a little bit intellectually dishonest to try to paint him this way when he wasn't that way. So what I did was I took three of the four editions that I knew of. I looked at the context. I looked at Cominius himself and where he carried himself over the years. And then I looked at the differences between the books. So what I tried to do is see where where Cominius was really going with things and then rewrite a, a good bit of it to where it's understandable and reader to the modern to the modern English reader. Uh, another thing I did was I took the 55-page introduction out of the front of the book. That it, it, it's all in all the different editions that I I've seen, and I reduced it to 32 pages of very chronological, very crisp information about Cominius, his context, his history, his accomplishments, and his legacy, and then why. Comenius keeps on popping up in history. He's known as the father of modern education. The UN passes out, through UNESCO, passes out an award to the top educator in the world every year, and they call it the Comenius Award. This guy was a phenom of phenoms, but he is unknown and pretty much uncelebrated for really all that he did for education, for the Lord's work, for his church and fellowship, he lost his entire family to the plague, and his country was ripped apart by religious and political factions fighting one another. How contemporary is that today? And Cominius's message to us is that we have a kingdom of our own. It is not borders and language and locales. It is love, truth, justice righteousness, goodness, kindness. Against such, there is no law, Scripture tells us. And we can live and be those things rather than expect the society around us to reflect it or to make us comfortable while we're in it. The Scripture says that he who the Son sets free, he is free indeed. How long did this whole process take you? Because you've obviously wanted to put this in the hand of modern readers. You've wanted them to get the awe and the wonder of this book and of the man who wrote it. I'm sure you wanted to make it just right. How long did that take you? We started the process March or April 2020, just before COVID hit the, the, the US. And I worked for seven months transcribing through the three editions and coming up with the, the with the fourth edition or the fifth edition, I guess. It's not a translation. I didn't go from the Czech into the English. Now, it reads at about a 10th grade level, and that's a good bit simpler than the other editions that are out there. We also added illustrations. There are uh, 16 illustrations throughout the book, and I think that that makes a book way more readable and more endearing and enjoyable. How did you come to, to finding just the right images to, to go along with the text? I had to go out and find a, an artist. That took me almost six months to get that done. That was almost more difficult than the narrative. Finding that right artist, I went through probably four or five different people to find the right guy. And I, I came up with a, with a dude in Brazil 
he had the vision. He understood what I wanted. I wanted something, uh, line drawings that would be would emulate kind of the the feel of Gustave Dore from the 1800s, 1860s, 1840s, somewhere in there. I wanted the book to look old school. The original book had woodcuts, which is an older form of, of art where they, they would cut out illustrations on, on wood blocks and then they would put ink on them and, and then they would stamp them on the parchment or whatever they were printing it on. And I wanted something of that nature. And the old saying, uh, a picture's worth a thousand words. This book has 16,000 more words in it than any other because it's got all these pictures in it. People get pictures. I got a lot of original scans from Comenius's work back in the 1650s and 1670s uh, of his work uh, that still survive today, along with some other artwork and, and things like that. So people can get more of a picture of Comenius and his value and what he what he brought to bear. He was asked at one point to be the uh, original president of Harvard College, which is now Harvard University. He wrote more than 140 volumes on education, philosophy, theology, and there are another 40 that he didn't finish. And this was after his library and his manuscripts were burnt twice. And it does sound like one of your goals in re-releasing this book, getting this out to a modern reader, is not only that they would be reading this allegory and and taking that to heart and, and hearing the message behind that, but also to look further into this man who had done so many extraordinary things. In reading Cominius and seeing his story, the inspiration of it, and whether it's the his life or whether it's the allegory, we need to see what God has blessed us with, we need to see what God has called us to, and we need to see about how God wants to voice and share that through us to do whatever it is that he wants done. And what I find about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is, the best definition I have found is what God is doing that his followers can cooperate in. It's not just the rule and reign of God. Yes, it is that, but it is far more than that. And there are so many things that you, Rodney, can do, and I can do, and Harry over there can do, and Susie over there can do, if we just tapped into the reality that we have fundamental value, we have fundamental giftings and callings that are unique to us, and that God expects us to use those to further his kingdom, not to fight the political order, not to stop the world from going to hell in a handbasket, but to be light and truth the world cannot be for itself in its proximity. We are the kingdom of God. We live the kingdom of God. We are empowered to do kingdom things. And when we do those things, the kingdom of God comes near the kingdoms of men. That's a powerful thought. I'm wondering what the response has been. I know that this new edition has not been out for too long, but what has been the response so far from people that have had the opportunity to read it? People are floored. When I got started with this project, for instance, 
I reached out to a historian friend of mine who was a past presidential candidate for the Southern Baptist Convention. And this guy likes history. He loves reading. I mean, I went to his library recently and he's got 50 times as many books as I do. I mean, all four walls are covered with them. And this guy reads voraciously. I had a medical condition and I wanted counsel. And so I, I said to him, I said, Wade, I said, I don't know if I have the horses to do this. And he says, well, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this book before. He said, uh, can you send me a couple sections? Because I started working on it. And so I sent him a couple sections. And the next day he called me and he said, you have to do something with this. He goes, this is unbelievable. This book has picked me up all over it. And I, I can go to secular places. I can go to museums and people, oh man, what's this? And they pick it up and they look at it and they're just, they're astounded. Many people say, I've never heard of this thing. In fact, when I got done adapting, I sent the book to two professors, one at Spring Arbor University and one at University of Illinois. Both of the professors are literary professors of 50 years experience. Both of them are published experts concerning Pilgrim's Progress, and neither one of them had ever heard of this book before, and both of them offered endorsement of it. I do want to touch on, though, you did mention that you had a medical issue, and you reached out to someone about that, because it wasn't all plain sailing during this process for you, was it? There, there were some things that kind of got in the way and changed life for you. Tell me about that. Yes. In April of 2020, I was having some serious issues at work. I was having blackouts and other issues. And work told me, you need to go see a doctor. And he administered some tests and asked a lot of questions. And he said, you know, he goes, I'm afraid to tell you. He says, but I think you have early onset dementia. And I said, what? I was 55 years old at the time. He said, we've got medicine to control it. He said, but whatever you've lost, it's not coming back. And he says, you're not going to be able to continue your work. And so work fired me. And I went to another specialist and, and the, the specialist there, he's a, a neurologist said, uh, yeah, you are definitely below where you should be at this age. And you have some serious problems here. And we lost our house. Then later on the next year, I've been healthy all my life. And now I'm on eight medicines. I had a stroke. Life has been really, really tough. When, you know, you're sailing along and you have a lot going for you. I just built a new house and we lived in a lake community and have it give it all up because I can't support it and I, I can't work anymore and I can't, you know, I can't maintain the life that I had to have to move into a 500 square foot apartment and to crush life down to where it fits in, in that area. What do I do with myself? How do I keep myself busy? How do I be substantial and meaningful in life like Mr. Cominius and Mr. Pilgrim? The two years between then and now has been a, a figuring out of that whole nine yards, has been a taking serious what Cominius had to say and what Pilgrim fought through in my own life. Some people got around and, and became encouraging. The uh, guy that encouraged me in the beginning really got behind things, got some other people involved. Here we are, two years later, with a book that can 
literally affect the world as we know it or affect the, the believers in this world as we know it. But it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to fight through and get it. Well, I'm glad that you have been able to move through that and make this book available for people. If people are wanting to find out more about the book or connect with you, where's the easiest place for them to find you? Okay, they can reach me, first of all, at my email. I love to dialogue with people. And my email address is timprice1965. That's T-I-M-P-R-I-C-E 1965 at gmail.com. Now, the hardbound edition is color, so if somebody wanted color and they really wanted the fancy book, we can arrange to get that overseas to anybody, but it will cost. And so I just want to be upfront about that. I also have the book available, audiobook, ebook, on Amazon. I will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can track that down, and whatever format they choose, they'll be able to, to find that there. Tim, it has been so good to talk to you, to hear the passion behind what you've done and to hear that it's having such a great effect. I want to thank you for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to visit with people all over the world and share, as you say, this passion because I want people to catch it and I want people to be lit on fire. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.